Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Bible Thumper podcast, where somebody's got to say it. Thank you for joining us this evening. We are going to get into the topic of, can I lose my salvation? So every single individual who is born again, every born again Christian, they just must ask themselves this question at some point in their life. They're wondering, is there any way that I can still go to hell? So the saved person is wondering, can I lose this precious gift that I've got, which is salvation? So before we jump into this, please just take a quick look at the screen. You can follow us on uh, Google, Spotify, Apple Podcast. You can get on and follow us on Stitcher or TuneIn Radio, Audible, Blueberry. We are on every podcast platform that we can get on. Please get on one of those, follow us, like us, and share this podcast around. That would help us an awful lot. If you are listening on one of those podcast platforms, you can join us on our Facebook and our YouTube channel, and we do a live video every Sunday, and that is going to be at 7 p.m. Mountain Time or 8 p.m. Central. So you can join in, you can leave comments and ask questions. And we'll get to them and we'll talk about the subject with you. So tonight, I do not have a guest. I'm not going to interview anyone. We're just going to talk about the Bible. And we're going to go over this subject of, can I lose my salvation? I think it's a topic that every Christian is interested in. So I decided I'm just going to write out the answer and we're going to jump into it. So I'm going to start out with a quote. If one person who was born again in Christ ever fails to enter into heaven when he dies, then God will have broken his pledge. That is Chuck Missler. So the individual who believes that they're a sinner, that the penalty is hell, which is eternal. They believe that God made a way for the penalty to be paid. They believe that Jesus is God and that his death on the cross, burial, and resurrection is all the work that's needed for their sins. That individual that believes those things is ready to be saved, and they can call on Jesus to save them. And my very favorite verse in the whole Bible is Romans chapter 10, verse 13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That verse, and and I should tell you, get your Bible out, turn to these verses, take a few notes, at least jot them down and look them up later, and this is going to help you. In that verse, God uses the term whosoever. That means anybody and everybody. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The Bible also says that you shall be saved. It doesn't say maybe. It doesn't say hopefully, it says that you shall be saved. Now that's great news because I'm a sinner and I believe that the penalty for sin is hell and I don't want to go to hell, I want to go to heaven. I believe Jesus is God and I believe he died on the cross and paid the penalty for my sins. Then I called on Jesus to be saved like the Bible says. So now I'm saved, I'm born again and I have the question, can I lose that salvation? Is there any way from this point forward that I could possibly end up in hell? So the short answer to that question is no, there is absolutely no way. And there are going to be a lot of Christians that argue that point. And they're going to come up with two basic ideas as far as losing your salvation. Number one, 
they're going to be convinced that you can sin either big enough or often enough. There's going to be a great enough amount of sin that's going to be able to keep you from heaven. The second idea they're going to have is that you can walk away from Jesus, reject God, reject the gift of salvation, want nothing to do with the Lord, and he is going to let you. Those are the two ideas that the opponents of this eternal security doctrine would stand on. Both of them are wrong, and we're going to go over what the Bible says, and we're going to show you several examples, and I believe at the end of this hour, we're going to give you a very convincing case for eternal security, and hopefully we're going to bring you a little bit of peace and comfort along with that. All right, so let's see, where do we want to go? I got a lot of notes here, so bear with me. They're in the form of paper. So you're going to hear a little bit of rustling as we go through them. But I did that so I could try to not look on another screen while I was talking to you. All right, so let's start with an analogy that Christ uses when he is questioned about salvation. If you go to the book of John, chapter 3, we run into a man named Nicodemus. And John chapter 3 is one of the more famous chapters in the Bible. There's a lot of really famous scriptures in here. And this story culminates with Jesus going over John chapter 3, 16, one of the more famous Bible verses in the whole Bible. Let's pick it up in verse 3. We're going to read through a few verses and we'll talk about it. So there is a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And we use the King James Bible on this podcast. So if your Bible reads a little differently, uh, you can always get a King James Bible pulled up on your phone and it'll be easier to follow along with you. Now, in these three verses, starting in verse one, we see that this guy, Nicodemus, was a Pharisee. That means he was not only well-educated, but he knew his Bible really well. We also see that Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. It says that he was a leader amongst the Pharisees. So Nicodemus told Jesus, I know you must be from God because of the miracles that you do. Jesus turns the subject to salvation. So what's the requirement to see the kingdom of God? Well, Jesus says being born again. Jesus compares getting saved to a one-time irreversible event, which is being born physically. Right now, you are the child of your mom and dad. So am I. The question I have, is there anything you can do or say to change who your mom and dad are? Well, no, there's nothing that you can do or say. There's no action. There's no belief that can change that. You are the child of your mom and dad no matter what. You can move far away. You can change your name. You can dye your hair. But you are still the child of your parents. In the same way, when we get saved, we become the children of God. This is kind of a contested idea. And a lot of times I'll hear people say that everybody's the child of God. 
That's not true. The Bible doesn't say that. If you want to say everyone ends up being the creation of God, sure, God is our creator, whether you're saved or lost. But the lost people cannot call God in heaven Father. That is reserved for those of us who are saved. If you're born again, if you're part of the family, then yes, you can call, we can say that God is our Father. But God, we are not all God's children here on planet Earth. That title is only for those of us who are saved. So when we get saved, we become the children of God. That's why we are taught by Jesus to pray in this manner, our Father who art in heaven. When you see, and you can look this up in Luke chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, the disciples asked Jesus, they said, look, can you teach us to pray? And Jesus takes the opportunity and says, when you pray, you're going to pray like this, our Father who art in heaven. Personally, I will always be the son of Joseph and Madonna Hayes. Ever since I was born, I couldn't change that. In the same way, getting born again is a one-time irreversible event. There is no way to undo that. Now let's look at another idea as far as eternal security. We're going to look at the law. And when I say we're going to look at the law, I don't mean the Old Testament law. I mean real estate law. Now my wife... My wife and I have invested in real estate for about 16 years now. We've bought houses to live in. We've bought houses to rent. We've bought uh, houses, well, we've bought vacant lots and we've turned around and sold them. Uh, we've bought land and built a house on them. Uh, we are into real estate. We have been for a very long time. And I know this isn't a you know Bible study on how to make money, but I'm a fan of investing in real estate. Now, with every transaction comes a small mountain of paperwork. Every time you buy a house, you got to go. A lot of times you're going to have a real estate agent, maybe an attorney. You're going to have a title company. and You're going to sit down at some point. And you're going to sign a whole bunch of papers in order to buy this piece of land. Selling a piece of property is the exact same thing. Now, if you've ever bought or sold a house, and anyone that buys a house, just so you know, the average amount of time you're going to spend in that house is eight years. That's just average in America. Maybe that, that dream house really is yours forever and you're going to die there. Okay, the numbers say differently. The numbers say that after about eight years, we're going to be done. We're going to move somewhere else. Whenever, so the, the reason I bring that up is most of us, have bought or sold a home, at least one. So we've gone through the process. When you buy a house, there is a large amount of time and energy that's put into either buying or selling that piece of property. Because of that, you don't want any potential buyers who are not serious about making an offer. We want the buyer to have some skin in the game. So because of, because of that, we usually ask for a down payment. In real estate, anytime we have sold a property, we ask for a non-refundable deposit. 
And that weeds out a whole bunch of folks that aren't serious about buying the property. In real estate, that is typically called earnest money. Earnest money is a down payment, or in other words, the first installment. When I give the seller earnest money, I enter into a contract. And at this point, I have this piece of property I want to buy. I make an offer on the property. I write them a check, and that's earnest money. At that point, we enter into a contract, and the seller of that property is no longer allowed to receive any other offers on that property or sell it to anyone else because they are that property is under contract, and I have given earnest money as a down payment. The contract states that the property is mine so long as I follow through with my obligation, which is to redeem the property. To redeem something, the word redeem means to gain or regain a possession of something in exchange for payment. The word redeem simply means to buy something or to buy something back. It means to free from a lien by a payment of an amount secured thereby. It means to release from a debt, and it also means to free from the consequences of sin. It is exactly what Jesus did for us when he died on the cross. He redeemed us. He literally bought us. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, we read, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come unto the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law. He freed us from that debt. Jesus freed us from the consequences of sin. He bought us. And we read about this again in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. We were redeemed with the blood of Christ. The currency used to buy my soul was blood. Now, not any blood would do. And we read about this in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4. It talks about how the blood of bulls and of goats, that's just not going to do. That cannot cleanse us of our sin. That cannot forgive us of our sin. Only God's blood was sufficient to pay for my sins and to purchase my soul. Now, this language might sound funny when I say that God bought me, but that's exactly what happened. The question I have is this. Can Jesus now sell me to someone else? Can the contract be broken? Can the deal go bad? Can I go to hell? The Bible has an answer. The Bible says that we are sealed. A seal is something that confirms, ratifies, or makes secure. It is a guarantee. It is an assurance. A seal designates 
protection, and ownership. Specifically, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. That means nobody is able to break that seal. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 through 22, we read, Now he which establisheth us with you in Christ, and hath anointed us, is God, who hath also sealed us and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 12 and 14, we also read that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted. After that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, it says that God seals us with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the earnest money. The Holy Spirit is that down payment. So does that down payment expire? How long is it good for? Well, verse 4 in Ephesians, sorry, verse 14 in Ephesians chapter 1 tells us it is good until the redemption of the purchased possession. There is no expiration date on the earnest money on the down payment that is the Holy Spirit. When we get saved, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God is the earnest money, the down payment. We are set aside. We are in a contract. And we will be in the possession of Jesus Christ one day. There is no expiration date on that earnest money. There is no way that down payment can go bad. The Bible says that we are sealed until the redemption of the purchased possession onto the praise of his glory. What's that possession? Well, that's me. That's my soul. That's what Jesus bled and died for. His blood purchased my soul. Okay, let's look at Ephesians 1.14 again, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession onto the praise of his glory. So Jesus purchased us with his blood. God sealed us with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the down payment or the earnest money. And we remain under contract until the day the Lord redeems his possession. So what that means is until the day I die, or the second coming of Christ, when I'm raptured, I am under contract. The down payment has been made, and my soul is off the market. There is no way for it to end up anywhere other than in the hands of the Lord who paid the down payment. All right, let's look at, since now that, that's it for real estate law, but we're going to continue with the law because the Bible uses a lot of legal terms when you read through it. And one of my favorite ones is one that Jesus uttered when he was on the cross. So the question is, how can we be condemned 
if the penalty has already been paid. Jesus explains the idea of eternal security with one word. That word is tetelestai. The word tetelestai is what Jesus said when he was on the cross. It was the last thing he said before he died. It literally means it is finished. And we read about that in John chapter 19, verse 30. When Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Now, that's pretty neat. But if you don't understand a little bit of history, we really miss something. All the people at the time knew that it had a deeper meaning. Tetelestai is a Greek word that is a legal term. Now, if I lived in Rome at the time of Christ and I was thrown in jail, my charges would be nailed to the door of the cell. So anyone that walked by could look and see what I was charged with and what I was doing in jail, what my sentence was. I've heard the document called a certificate of debt. Th this this kind of goes off in the weeds just a little bit, but understand Roman guards, when they were guarding a prison, if a prisoner escaped, whatever debt was owed to the state on that document, the prison guard would have to pay for. That is why when they were guarding criminals that were condemned to die, so they were going to receive a capital punishment, if those criminals got out of the prison, the guards would have been executed for allowing them to escape. The guards would to, would had to have paid that debt. Now that's just a little, that's just a little bit of extra. That's, you know, there's no charge there. Understand you're going to, you're going to, that, that's going to make sense when you read through certain portions of the Bible. It's going to help to uh, explain a few stories, especially in the book of Acts. So the word tetelestai is a Greek word that is a legal term. And that was on that document, that certificate of, sorry, that, that term was not on the document yet, that uh, certificate of death that was nailed to the door or the cell that we were in, let everyone know what the charges were, what we were convicted of, what the penalty was. It was all written out right there. Now, I would need to remain in that jail cell if I was convicted until the debt was paid. This is where it gets neat. Upon release, the judge would take that certificate of debt and write on it to Telestai, paid in full. This document would be given to me, and it would be my protection against being charged with the same crime a second time. In our judicial system, it's called double jeopardy. The crime cannot be paid for twice. If you were convicted of a crime and you paid the time and you're let out, you cannot be convicted of that same crime again. When Jesus died on the cross, whose sin did he pay for? Well, Jesus paid for everyone's sin. That's what he went to the cross for. It's not like he only paid for the sin of a couple people. He paid for everybody's sin. Romans 10, 13, again, says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
Salvation is there for everybody and anybody who calls on Jesus to save them. Now, a little bit more detail there. Think of this. When you got saved, I'm going to just use the first person. When I call on Jesus to save me, to forgive me of my sin and save me, what sin do I mean? Obviously, I want Jesus to forgive me of all the sin in my life that I can remember, right? I want him to forgive me of all of the sin, not just a couple, all of those sins. More than that, I also want forgiveness for all the sins I've committed that I can't remember. I don't just want Jesus to forgive me of the ones that I can recall. But no, 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 all of them, from the time I was born till today, when I called on Jesus, I want them all forgiven. But furthermore, I want forgiveness for all the sins I'm going to commit in the future. Salvation deals with all the sins in my life, past, present, and future. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't die just to forgive us of the sins from the time we were born up to the point of salvation. It's not like we have to keep calling on the Lord Jesus every time we sin or otherwise we're in trouble. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid for every single sin in the life of Patrick Hayes from the time I was born until the time I died. Today, I'm 42 years old and he, I'm hoping I'm going to live, you know, more than into my 80s. So for the next 40 years, every sin that I commit, Jesus already forgave them. And when I called on him for salvation, all of those sins were dealt with. Jesus said they are, quote, paid in full. It is finished to Telestai. Paul explains this in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. There were trespasses that were written down against us. What you got to remember is that every sin that we've ever committed is known of God. As a matter of fact, and we're not going to get off into the weeds here, but they are actually recorded. They are written down. The Bible talks about several books. One of them is filled with all the sins of Patrick Hayes. Now, when Jesus died, he took them out of the way and nailed them to the cross. You see, there was this list of sins. These are the things that I'm guilty of. These are the things, this is my certificate of debt. These are the things that need to be paid for. And Jesus takes that off of the door of my cell and nails it to the cross. When Jesus said to Telestai, he was talking about my sin. My sin is paid in full. Well, if it is paid for, it cannot be paid for again. The judge made his ruling and struck the, the gavel. The case is closed. It will never be opened again because the penalty for the crime has been paid. 
Jesus took the certificate of debt for all people of all time, listing all our sin and nailed it to the cross, declaring it paid in full. That is what Jesus was talking about in the book of John when he said, when he was on the cross, it is finished. That is why the born-again Christian must go to heaven when they die. We're going to talk about a couple more ideas here before we're done for the evening. These ideas have to do with the hands of God. I'm going to cover two different analogies. Both use the hands of God as the subject. Jesus, the great shepherd, explains to us that we are sheep. He is the shepherd and he gives his sheep eternal life. John 10 verses 27 and 28. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Jesus also explains that those sheep of his who get eternal life shall never perish. There are no terms or conditions whereby we may perish. Our salvation is unconditional. The gift was given and we merely received it. There is no deal that can be broken. Jesus did not say they shall never perish unless. He just said they shall never perish. Salvation is the gift of God. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9. Very famous passion passage talking about how we are saved by grace and not by works. Now, a gift is no longer a gift if there is a condition, if strings are attached. When you go to a birthday party, when you get your wife a present for Valentine's Day, or you get someone a present for whatever the case is, and you get someone a gift. So let's just take the gift for the little kid at the birthday party. You get the, the newest stupid Nerf gun, right? And you wrap it up and you give it to your son and he brings it to that little goober and they open it up. Then you don't have along with that gift. Well, yeah, do me a favor. I mean, it's it's a gift, but it'd be nice if you'd wash my car, and then we'll call it even. As soon as there are conditions, it is no longer a gift. Salvation is the gift of God. It is unconditional. There are no terms. Because of that, we cannot fail on our part. We are simply receiving the gift. There is no way to mess that up. If you receive the gift, you open the gift, it's yours, that's it. There's no way to mess that up from that point forward. Let's see. Forgive me. I think I was in, okay, John 10, verses 27 and 28. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Huh. 
When we get saved, we are in the hand of who? The Bible says, Jesus said, no one can pluck them out of my hand. When we get saved, we are in the hand of Jesus. He tells us that no man can pluck us out of his hand. No one can force open the hand of Christ. Our soul is secure. Jesus won't drop us. He won't lose us. He won't forget about us. But it gets even better than that. If we read the next verse, verse 29, so I'm going to read 27, 28, and 29 to give context. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. We are also in the Father's hand. As if the hand of Jesus wasn't enough, we are in Jesus' hand when we get saved. And then the Lord said, and then the Lord Jesus says, But my Father, who's greater than all, also has you in his hand, and no one can pluck you out of his hand either. So Jesus and God the Father got two hands on you when you're saved. Do you th you honestly think someone's going to get those hands apart and get you out of there? The Bible says you can't. I'm not concerned about it. So we are also in the Father's hand. If you've ever been to my church, oh, we're gonna we're gonna get it now. This last one, I know I'm gonna lose someone. Up, okay but that's, that's okay. If you've ever been to my church, you know I like numbers, I like math, and I like science. And we are going to nerd out just a little bit here as I explain this last idea concerning eternal security and how you cannot lose your salvation no matter what. I like using math and science to prove the Bible. Now, the Bible doesn't need to be proven. Because of its author, it is true. But I still like it when math and science back up what God says. It's neat to me. As a kid, I was always into math and science. Reading and grammar and composition and whatever, I think that's for the birds. Okay, I was always in the remedial classes there. But with math and science, I liked it. So we're going to go over just a little bit of this. The universe has a diameter of 92 billion light years across. So if we think about a the universe, let's just look at it as kind of a two-dimensional object, like a record, okay? So the universe is 92 billion light years across. Now, before we even go any further than that, I need to tell you that a light year is a distance. It's not an amount of time. A light year is the distance that light will travel in one year. The speed of light is 299 million meters per second. Now, most of us are more familiar with, say, miles per hour. So the speed of light is 186 miles per second. Not hour, 186 
1,000 miles per second. That is close to a speed of 670 miles per hour. Now you say, Patrick, that's wonderful. How on earth does this relate to the Bible? We're going to get there. Bear with me for two minutes. At that speed, the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second, if you were traveling around the Earth, you would circumnavigate the globe 26,986 times in one hour. And that's assuming that the uh, circumference of the Earth is 24,850 miles. That means that at that same speed, if you started in the center of the universe and traveled at the speed of light, and that's 186,000 miles per second, it would take you 46 billion years to get to the edge of the universe. So you're, you start, remember the universe, like a record, you start in the center, you want to get out of the universe, you want to travel to the edge of the universe, and you're traveling at 670 million miles per hour, if you continue at that speed, it will take you 46 billion years to get to the edge of the universe. You with me so far? Okay. Problem is, we don't have anything that travels at the speed of light. As a matter of fact, we can't even develop a vehicle that will travel at half of the speed of light. So I did a little bit of math on three different vehicles. The fastest car on the market today is the SSC Tartara. That's spelled T-U-A-T-A-R-A. -A. So you can check me on this stuff. I don't know how to pronounce the car. What I do know is it has a top speed of 316 miles per hour. If you started in the center of the universe, the middle of that record, and you were in that car, and you were driving the maximum speed in that car to the perimeter, it would take you 97 and a half quadrillion years. And that's if you don't stop for gas and you stay at the maximum speed the whole time. That's how big the universe is. Now, the fastest plane in the world is the American Military X-15, which has a top recorded speed of 4,519 miles per hour. So that's over 4,000 miles per hour faster than the fastest car. To travel from the center of the perimeter of the universe in that plane, or I'm sorry, yeah, in that plane would take you 6.8 quadrillion years. And that's if you were traveling at a speed of 4,519 miles per hour the entire time. That's how big the universe is. Now, the fastest rocket had a top speed of 364,620 miles per hour. So if we forsake the car and the plane and we decide we're going to get in the rocket and we're going to use that and we're going to travel on the same journey, we're going to start in the center of the universe and we're going to travel in any direction to the perimeter and we're going to go the top speed the whole time, well, that means that it's going to take us 845 trillion years to get to the edge of the universe. 
And you say, Patrick, that's all wonderful. But what does that have to do with a Christian remaining saved no matter what? Well, that's easy. There are two things that we need to know about the hand of God. Number one, God says that his hand spans the universe. The word span in the Bible is a measurement. If you extend your pinky and your thumb while curling your fingers and you make this little, you know, that little gesture there, okay, that little gesture is called the shaka. And if you go to Hawaii, it means right on or thank you or, you know, everything's great. If you drive around Hawaii, people reach their hand out of the window and give that to you when you slow down and let them in when you're driving down the road. That's just a, that's a universal thank you. <coughs> Excuse me. That's a universal thank you. Everything's good symbol. Okay. Other people might know it as the hang 10 or the chamba. Okay. Everything's good. That right there is what the Bible calls a span. The distance from your thumb to your pinky. That's a measurement used in the Bible. It is a measurement <clears throat> that God talks about in Isaiah 48. Now, there are several other measurements. You can look up, if you're curious, you can look up hand breath. So a hand breath is the distance from here over to here. Okay, the hand breath. That's another one that we find used in the Bible. And then you also have the cubit. The cubit, uh, you measure from your fingertip down to your elbow. The standard Egyptian cubit at the time of Moses was 18 inches. Okay, let's stick with the span. In Isaiah 48, 13, my hand also hath laid the foundation of the earth and my right hand hath spanned the heavens. When I call unto them, they stand up together. God's hand, specifically his right hand, spans the universe. Well, when we read through the Bible, we find out that when we get saved, God places us in his hand. And he says that that is the most secure place that we could ever be. So if you want to get away from God, get out of the hand of God, you want to reject God and reject the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross and turn from, the, from, from him and, and, and be away, okay? You are in the center of God's hand. And if you want to get to the edge, I suggest you start running. Because with the fastest vehicle on earth, it is going to take you over 800 trillion years to get to the edge of the hand of God. And the Lord says that you are in the palm of his hand. That's where he keeps you. That's where the saved are. Friends, the idea that we can lose our salvation is really a ridiculous one. Because remember, when Jesus died on the cross and said, it is finished, everything was paid for. Even if you rejected Christ and said, I don't want anything to do with God. Now I'm, I'm an atheist. I don't believe Jesus is God anymore. That doesn't matter. When you got saved, 
all the sins were paid for. Past, present, and future. There's not a sin that you can commit that wasn't included in your salvation. And sins don't need to be paid for twice. They only need to be paid for once. And when Jesus bled and died on the cross, okay, that is when our sins were paid for. So no matter what happens, those sins are taken care of. And we are going to go to heaven when we die. There is no alternative for the Christian. There are only a couple verses that the opponents of this idea will bring up. They are very few, and they are all grossly misunderstood. But instead of focusing on those couple of verses, what we talked about was the mountain of Scripture that all paints the same picture, which is, once the Christian is saved, Jesus paid for their soul, bought them with his blood, God sealed them with the Holy Spirit of God, they will remain saved and sealed until the redemption is done. Jesus purchases us. We are then in the family of God. We can call God Father. We cannot change that no matter what. It's impossible to. And Jesus and God are holding on to us. And no man can pluck them out of his hand. See, when I get saved, I'm in the hands of God. I'm in the hands of uh, God the Father and, and Jesus. And no man can pluck them out of his hand. That includes me. I can't get myself out of their hands. That's why Jesus explained it like that. He's like, oh, yeah, I got you. No one can get you out of here. Oh, that's not clear enough. Okay, God the Father, he's also got you. And no one can get you out of there. I would hope that everybody can have confidence and security in their salvation. If you understand that Jesus is God, if you understand that you are a sinner, if you understand that there is a hell that is an eternal place of punishment and you don't want to go there, you want to go to heaven, understand that Jesus made a way when died on the cross to forgive you of your sins, to pay the debt, you are ready to get saved. Romans 10, 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Call on Jesus, pray and ask him to forgive you of your sins and save you. Confess that he is God and you are born again. You are going to heaven and absolutely nothing can change that. That's the great news. That is the most wonderful news. You never have to be concerned about it again. Folks, thank you very much. We're going to finish up just a little bit early, which is okay. Uh, that's how long the lesson took. I'm going to ask that you would please get on the different platforms where you can uh, find us uh, on podcast platforms, whether it be Spotify or Stitcher, Google or Apple Podcast, uh, TuneIn Radio, uh, Blueberry, uh, uh, Audible. Please get on one of those. Uh, listen to us, uh, download some episodes, share them with your friends, and use an episode like this to answer your friend's question. When someone comes to you and, and they say, look, I'm just not sure. I'm scared that, you know, I might not be saved anymore. Okay, you can That's the reason we answer questions like this on this podcast, so that you can share this stuff around and you can hopefully uh, help somebody you know, um, get that uh, question answered and their salvation secure. Uh, thank you. I see Adam and Sharon and Mike. Thanks for joining us live here. And we always appreciate the comments. That's very encouraging. 
And I would just like to remind you that we will be on here every Sunday night, 7 p.m. Mountain Time, 8 p.m. Central. You can join the uh, live uh, broadcast on Facebook or YouTube. Everybody have a good evening and uh, we'll talk to you next week.